Hi friends, this is J.B. Minton. I'm thrilled to announce that the paperback edition of my book A Skeleton Key to Twin Peaks will be available to order in late November of this year at book retailers online and around the world. When I started creating A Skeleton Key in the summer of 2017, it was a spreadsheet with a bunch of numbers and charts that I was using to try to understand technically how the narrative of the return was being told as it was airing weekly. And now, three years later, this book is the result of constant tinkering and talking and designing, all with the purpose of being able to emotionally understand and communicate my feelings about this masterpiece of cinema and storytelling. And I want you to have this book sitting close by you the next time that you dive into this 18-hour film about a fallen hero trying his best to stand up for one more round. When you're done reading A Skeleton Key to Twin Peaks, I want you to think about the return from a deeper level of appreciation and hopefully to love and respect this art as much as I do. This book includes an introduction by artist, author, and friend of the podcast, Jeff Lemire. Jeff's masterpiece, Sweet Tooth, is being created for Netflix right now, a Robert Downey Jr. production. I am so proud that Jeff lent his talent to this book. Featuring detailed charts, graphs, synopses, and analysis, along with a unique visual language that I created just for this book to ensure that every reader is on the same page with what is happening in every scene. Also, there's a foreword by Scott Ryan of the Blue Rose Magazine and Fayetteville Mafia Press, and the book will also include personal photos from my journeys through Twin Peaks around the world. So come with me on a personal guided tour of the majesty of Twin Peaks The Return. Go to jbmintonwriter.com for more information with images from the book to help you understand what you'd be buying. Also, the PDF version will always be free for joining my Reading Buddy book club and all the net proceeds from the paper sale of this book after design and printing costs will be donated equally to the David Lynch Foundation and to the Krishnamurti Foundation of America in honor of the creators of Twin Peaks. Now, let's rock and get into the podcast. to the In Our House Now podcast, um, and it's going to be on the theme of, of Andy. So hello, John. First, welcome back. Hey, Josh. Uh, good to talk to you as always. Can you walk us through what prompted you to suggest that we chat about Andy today? So uh, so we have an idea for a podcast that we're working on, and I think it's going to be great, but there's a few logistics we're working out, and we haven't quite got to it yet. And so in the meantime... I thought, well, here's a topic that's pretty interesting, and you and I had discussed it, uh, you know, a little bit on the phone. And I thought, why don't we make it the topic for a podcast? I think people will find it interesting. And that topic is uh, Deputy Andy Brennan of the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department. And so, um, uh, some people out there know I'm I'm writing about Twin Peaks all the time. I'm hoping someday there'll be a book. Uh, of some, you know, some value out there. And I'm going through each part very, very carefully um, and, and analyzing each one. And um, I'm at part 14 right now. And I've been working on part 14 for about five weeks. And uh, the reason 
one of the reasons why part 14 is taking so long is I call it uh, the data dump episode. Uh, there may be, uh, you know, 15, 16, 17, I, I haven't got there yet. Those might be data dump episodes too. And I don't think they're quite the same as 14 because in 14 you've got um, – You've got the Gordon Cole section at the beginning uh, with Diane. Diane kind of gives a bunch of information suddenly about her, you know, her family and, and Janie E. And then you've got Gordon Cole giving this huge data dump about his dream that he had about Monica Bellucci and, and Cooper and the flashback to Firewalk with me. Uh, and you have uh, the uh, you have the data dump uh, with Albert just sort of telling. Uh, Tammy all about what tulpas are and the history of them. And then you've got, um, you've got Andy in the middle, suddenly getting his own data dump into him from the firemen, uh, which we're going to talk about. And then later in the episode, you get a data dump from, um, from Freddie who kind of tells you everything that happened to him in one long monologue. Uh, and so there's a lot, you know, to process in that episode. Uh, and in, in the, the central core of part 14 is that fascinating uh, sequence where the four uh, sheriff's department officers, uh, Truman, Bobby Hawk, and Andy, hike into Jack Rabbit's palace and then into that vortex zone or whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, Andy is... is um, we all know he's he's sort of sucked up into the vortex or blinks away into the into the realm of the firemen and uh and he gets a bunch of information and then he returns to earth with that information perhaps slightly changed um and so that just got me thinking about uh about andy as a character and why why andy why was he chosen versus some of the other characters you would think maybe Hawk would be the ideal candidate to he's sort of in touch with the supernatural realm and maybe he would have been a more likely candidate. And so I started thinking about all those questions. Why Andy? What is it about Andy, you know, that, that makes him the one the fireman chooses? Um, and so anyway, we're going to get into that. But that is what led me to to the topic of Andy Brennan. One, one thing to also remember about part 14, it was a great kind of litany you just went through of everything that happened there. At the end of that Monica Bellucci dream was also the claw back to Firewalk with me. So there's that moment where Albert and Cole both remembered the, the Jeffries scene from Firewalk with me. So all of that data dump actually reaches all the way back as I would say, to Firewalk with me to pull it into the context of, of what's happening in part 14 as well. Yeah, you know, one of the uh, the themes I saw, or I guess one of the recurring um, concepts in part 14, it's actually throughout the entire 18 parts, but in, I saw more of it in 14, was the idea of remembering things, of, of memory. Um, you know, Cole comes in to, right at the beginning of the of, of part 14, he comes in and goes, I remembered, you know, what this thing I wanted to tell you about Albert and he's talking about the, the case with, uh, you know, Las Vegas and the, you know, what they're investigating, um, with major Briggs's body. And then obviously, yeah, there's the, this information that gets sort of dumped into Cole and he, he tells it to Albert and then they both say, Hey, I, you know, I'm starting to remember that. And, um, and then of course later in, in Jack Rabbit's palace, after they've had this encounter, most of the, uh, I'd say all four of them, in effect, uh, the officers can't remember what happened. Um, 
And, and at the very end of the part 14, uh, you've got, I think it's Sophie and Megan, the two Roadhouse Booth uh, conversants, you know, they're talking. And she's one of them, I think it's Megan says, you know, I, I can't remember if my uncle was there. You know, she's recounting this story. And so there's this that memory is, is, you know, you see it all the way back in part one with Marjorie Green, who forgets she has the key to Ruth Davenport's uh, uh, apartment. And you see that happen, you know, with Bobby, he brings back memories. I mean, memory is a, a critical element throughout. But I just saw it happening, I think, more often in uh, part 14. And uh, what you just what you just said, that callback to, to Firewalk With Me, I, I know this really isn't the Andy thing, but it's interesting because um, um, it struck me the first time I saw that, y- you know, I, I had always assumed they remembered it, you know, that they had had this encounter with Philip Jeffries. And so why was that not, you know, impacting their investigation? And then you find out in this scene that it's either been suppressed or, um, or it's only now been introduced. Some of, you know, these unusual psychological concepts that could be at play. It's important as we start to think about Andy, you know, and, and specifically, you're going to have to help me remember what episode was. I thought it was the finale of season one where Andy uh, shoots Jacques Renault and he has this really commanding presence about him, just like he does uh, at the end of, of this experience as well. And so this concept of somebody waking up to their potential, you know, I, I feel like Cole and Albert in that moment. You know, what, what if they're not the same characters that were in Firewalk with me? And then, you know, suddenly they, they kind of make that connection like, oh, yeah, that was us at the beginning of this dream. Yeah, that makes sense now. You know, it, it's kind of it's kind of like a, a connection is made there for the, for the viewer as well. Yeah, you know, and I think it's subtle and I'm not sure how much, you know, we can really read into it. But there's certainly this idea at work in Twin Peaks The Return that um, things are happening and then they they disappear from your mind. I mean, there's so much in the story that's never referenced again. In a, in a typical narrative, you would assume, oh, well, the hit and run driver who killed the boy, you know, they're gonna they're gonna follow up on that. They're gonna talk about it at least in another scene. That doesn't happen. Andy's supposed to meet with the guy up in the, you know, on the road to talk about the truck, and he he you know doesn't show up, and and Andy never follows up on that. Uh, Bobby has a strange encounter in the uh, in the intersection with the woman and the and the girl who's vomiting and the, the gunshot, yeah. and that's never referenced again. And so um, this scene that happens in um, in the part fourteen where uh, Cole and Albert suddenly say, "I'm beginning to remember that the idea that." that you really can't necessarily rely on your mind to, to, um, to tell you what's there. I mean, it's some of it's being removed and I'm not quite sure why that is um, other than some larger conceptual framework that we could put around it. Like, you know, there's a mind at work that's sort of observing or imagining all of this happening. And so when that happens, everything becomes unreliable. But um, and just in terms of, if we go down into the, specific characters and and the story as it's playing out you have these incidents well when albert and and cole encounter the vortex uh themselves you know and and albert pulled cole out um and then the, the woodsman had been creeping around they all come back to the buckhorn police station and they're all kind of in a daze they they don't 
I think Albert even says, I'm, I'm starting to remember. No, 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 it's Cole. He says, I'm starting to remember that, you know, bearded men in, in on a staircase or something. And so these things get pushed down and then they, depending on, um, you know, what happens, uh, they, um, they pop back up again. Well, and Andy is the only one that walks out of Jackrabbit's palace with the memory intact, it seems like. Yeah, you know, I... I I wonder how much of it he really does remember. Um, and so we can start, we can start talking about that. Um, I, he certainly, it seems to me he's been programmed and he is following a programming that's been installed by the firemen. Um, I say that only because um, while he is commanding, when he comes out of, and he's holding NATO in his arms, he comes out, uh, back to the other, uh, the three officers, and he basically tells them what they have to do. Um, you get the sense that that sort of wears off because there's the scene coming up shortly after that where Lucy and Andy are putting NATO in the cell, and Andy's kind of back to his normal, you know, um, gentle self. And I, I guess my take on that, he could very well remember everything that happened, or it could be that, um, he's just he's just got all the right programming in place and he doesn't really acknowledge it until it's triggered or until he knows he has to yeah it's like a temporary omnipotence that kind of wears off i I think of it like the kids in it you know after they had confronted the monster they kind of this fog settled over their minds and they eventually even forgot the town once they left there right yeah yeah i think so i i think we should we should kind of maybe we should back up a little and just talk about Andy and why Andy was chosen. It was, it was really interesting to me. And and I often overanalyze things uh, and maybe I go too far, but um, I'm curious as to why, why was Andy chosen? And I think there's a signal in a scene that happens before they hike up to Jack Rabbit's palace. It it sort of positions Andy uh, apart from some of the other, uh, three officers. And so, and it's simply this throwaway comedic bit almost where Bobby's come in with sandwiches for their hike. And he has, he got them at the double R, he's got four sandwiches in packages and he lays them out on the, uh, on the table for them. And he says, you know, I've got roast beef and cheese. I've got ham and cheese. I've got turkey and cheese. And I've got just cheese. And Hawk says, well, who ordered just cheese? And Andy says, I did. <laughs> You know, and, it, and it's funny and it's Andy and he's always kind of a little bit different. But you know, I honestly started to think a little bit about it, given the fact that we know Andy is the one that's selected uh, of the four to to go to the fireman. Andy is, is likely a vegetarian. Um, at least there's an implication there. And I again, maybe I'm reading way too much into it, but I think Andy is the kind of person who has a, a, a real care for life and he doesn't want to harm anyone or anything uh unless of course you you know he's forced to or to protect someone he he has a certain um um philosophy i think about him and uh he is not going to harm another conscious you know living thing another animal just for his own food he's he's gonna have just the cheese and i i know that could be you know just reading way way too much into it but i it started to make more sense the more i thought about the character about how caring he is and how 
how um, gentle he is and how truly pure Andy is. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought that Andy was sort of the 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 real world, quote unquote, equivalent of the exaggerated Dougie Jones character that Cooper is, is embodying in Las Vegas. Um, you know, Dougie Jones that we, we know there is absolutely purely good. I mean, he can't he's so purely good. He cannot even take any action. He only radiates goodness and good things happen to him and anyone who comes into contact with him. But if you were to try to adopt the, you know, that kind of philosophy in, in a real world life situation, I think you get Andy Brennan. I, you know, the, the, the way he treats everyone around him. Uh, and um, he is he is either by he you know he chose to be that way or he just naturally became that way but he is he is a is a probably you know if you were going to rank the characters he's one of the most good if that makes sense of of all the characters in twin peaks and i think you know pure is is a good word for for andy and I, i like that a lot it actually reminded me when we first started having this conversation of the there's a gnostic gospel that was dug up out of the desert in 40 in 1947 of tom the gospel of thomas where basically it has jesus saying something to the effect of if you bring out what is within you what you bring out will save you if you do not bring out what is within you what you do not bring out will destroy you and i feel like that's a that can really be a pertinent centralized message to all of Twin Peaks, but for Andy and for Dougie in particular. Uh, yeah, uh, I think, I mean, I really think you, you know, that kind of speaks right to it. Your observation is, is, is spot on when it comes to, especially when it comes to what we see Andy and his behavior and the effects Andy has on people around him. I mean, nobody dislikes Andy except maybe Chad, <laughs> you know, but Chad's a bad guy anyway. So, and I think we do see a lot of to- toleration of Andy. You know, I feel like even uh, Sheriff Truman and, and Hawk, to the extent of, have you found anything about the Indians yet? You know, Hawk, they, they, they tolerate him because of his goodness. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I really think that that's, that speaks to the, you know, there's, there's characters in Twin Peaks that, you know, they just sort of earn respect because they are true to themselves. And it's interesting where, you know, the log lady is talking to Hawk uh, over the phone and she says, you know, the Truman brothers are true men and the other ones, the good ones that are with you. you know, the log lady is acknowledging that there's a, there's a group of people around Hawk who are good people. And certainly one of them that she's, she's referring to is Andy and Lucy, you know, and Truman. So, um, so it, it just, it was, it was interesting to me to think about the character in that way, to think about that's why the fireman chose Andy. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think on the surface, it's sort of like, well, the least likely person to be chosen would be Andy. So that's the one they decided to use to kind of give us all a little, you know, surprise in the story while we're watching it. And we can kind of nod along and think, oh, of course, you know, uh, they picked Andy. But I think Lynch and Frost were both um, um, thinking more deeply about it. You know, there wasn't just for the little twist or the little, you know, um, surprise moment of Andy that there was reason behind it. Uh, and um, uh, and as, as pure as Hawk might be, I think um, Hawk is aware or, uh, or, or perhaps 
um, in touch with darker forces. I don't mean in any way to, to suggest that he's a he's, he's a dark character, but you know when he's showing that map to Truman, he knows what uh, what supernatural dangers may lurk out there. And the log lady, in fact, you know, cautions Hawk and says, "There's fire where you're going," and Hawk. Um, you know, he is willing to take some risks and to perhaps um, venture into a territory that is going to put not only himself, but other people in danger. And I think Hawk is a great and wonderful character, but I think there's something a little bit, um, you know, I think Andy was, was the right person for the fireman. If you had to, you know, if you had to start looking at why, um, Andy was going to be for the firemen the most reliable uh, character for the plan he needed to put in place that we see play out in part seventeen. Yeah, I agree, and I think it's it's important to to note that Andy was really the first character, to my knowledge, that experienced a true sadness about Laura Palmer's death in the pilot. You know, I, I feel like you know he he really was the emotional wall that set the tone for the rest of that episode for, for, you know, cause he's not the stoic, he's not the stoic cop like Harry was. He's not, you know, that the doting husband like Pete was, and there was some, some empathy there with Pete, but like to truly unleash the emotions of what Laura Palmer's death meant. Andy was the character that did that. Yeah, that's a great point. I hadn't even thought back into you know, deeper into the earlier seasons, but you know, Andy, um, he, what's the word I'm looking for? He, he's not afraid to be who he is. And if that means to cry, to show that emotion, he's going to do it. And, um, you know, there's something about that, about that lack of, um, self-consciousness, uh, you know, that, that they're, you know, what's someone else going to think about me? And then that kind of becomes a trap that you or a barrier that you know can is self-imposed upon you and it, it's harder to act because you're worried about what other people think Andy doesn't really have that issue with him he is a good person and he's going to behave the way he behaves and I think that's why he's accepted by the others there's nothing there's no calculation in Andy and I think of, you know, Cooper as Dougie, when he looks at his son standing outside, I think it's in episode five, and the tear just kind of comes down. You know, he's openly weeping as he looks at his child. And then you compare that to Mr. C in, in part one, where they're sitting in the diner, and he's basically like, I don't want anything I need. So he, he gets so defensive just at the idea that somebody would think he needed something that, you know, it causes this emotional, uh, almost violent response. And it's a, it's a good juxtaposition, right? And, and speaking of uh, uh, Dougie Cooper seeing uh, Sonny Jim and crying, um, you've got another contrast with uh, Wally coming back to, uh, to Twin Peaks. And Andy goes out, and Andy is nothing but proud and delighted and thrilled at the presence of his son. I mean, it's just, again, pure joy. Uh, he is uh, able to just spend those few moments with him. 
this is such a great point. It's, and it's something that, that is that a lot of people don't realize, but Andy actually makes himself, Andy and Lucy both make themselves almost subservient to their own child there. Remember, they almost need his permission to change his bedroom into, into a study. And while that is a great comedy line, just thinking about what it takes for a parent to seek a child's approval to make a change in their own house, it speaks volumes, doesn't it? It is interesting. Well, the whole Wally thing is interesting, too, about the way he sort of shows up just after they've been talking about him. And, um, uh, you know, you could make an argument, and I have <laughs> in certain places where, in effect, they almost conjure him. Not that he's not that he's, a, you know, a fantasy element necessarily, but that they need him in a, in a certain moment. And so he comes. He's there. And he's there. You know what? I'm here. I came here. You need to uh, you need to transform that. Um, uh, that room go please go right ahead <laughs> you know and they're all like oh great it's perfect so and and in in a way too um wally is sort of a, another good presence that comes into their lives and i can't remember the dialogue now but it's almost as if he is bolstering andy and lucy so that they are even better prepared for uh some dark constant some dark times that are coming uh you know relatively soon in their lives they have to be prepared for facing some some um, dire forces well for sure he talks about dharma right and dharma is duty in in hinduism exactly exactly and it, it's almost as if he's there to kind of um i don't know just um bless them i don't know if that's the right word to use but uh, they are um they are, I think, um, energized by his presence. I put it that way. Yeah, I mean, like, just I love this this whole scene for many, many reasons. But essentially, he recounts the the white man's journey from the east all the way to the west, and somehow connects it to how he's standing right here in Twin Peaks, and everyone's following their dharma, and it's it's a generally a good a feeling of goodwill. I think that we leave that seat that scene with. To your point, it's a blessing. It's it's a an invocation almost to the beginning. Of, of what is going to be a journey for every one of these characters, except Wally. Uh, and it's interesting. We only see Wally in that one time. And I know that the scene is often considered a comedic, um, you know, one of those sort of um, comic relief sequences. And it is, I mean, especially the way Truman kind of, you know, he sort of, <laughs> he sort of tolerates him. And, uh, you know, the, he rolls his eyes, I think Truman does when he knows he has to go out and, and talk to him. But, um, but, when you think about the idea that Wally is the son of Lucy and Andy, and these are two really pure characters, um, you know, Wally could in effect also be another Dougie-like character who's traveling the country on his motorcycle. But I like the idea of Wally being this character out in the world, just sort of spreading, spreading goodness where he goes. He 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 falls into that category of some of these uh, few other characters that seem to radiate a certain element of, of goodness about them. And Andy is certainly one of them. So Andy is Andy's the one that. Um, that the fireman chooses and brings into that otherworldly realm to download this uh, vast amount of critical, crucial information into Andy's mind. And um, I think, you know, the fireman does that because the fireman can't be sure he can rely on Cooper. I think the fireman 
um, I think the underlying theme of all the, the motivations of the characters in Twin Peaks is it's all about insurance, which we get in that line in the very, very first uh, part. You know, it's all about insurance. And everybody who's behaving, you know, Mr. C has always got another plan because he's got an insurance policy essentially in place. If this doesn't work, I've got insurance. And the fireman's the same way. And, and so uh, I don't think – I think the fireman realizes, you know – I'm not sure I'm going to be able to rely on Cooper. He is clouded by his own wants and he's got his own agenda. And while he's certainly a wonderful agent to have in play, he might go astray and I can't allow that to happen. Or or be handicapped. Yeah, exactly. So the fireman puts in place backup plans and Andy is sort of the critical backup plan. So is uh, Freddie, whom we find out later in this very part was also selected by the fireman to, to go and, you know, meet his destiny in Twin Peaks. And there's, there's an interesting little bit of information that Freddie relays when he's telling his story to James about, you know, uh, just before he got sucked up into the vortex, Freddie says, I was starting to question my life and I felt like I needed to help others. And so in effect, Freddie had sort of undergone a, bit of a change. He's sort of realized, you know, I need to do something good. And it's at that point that he gets sucked up into the vortex because the firemen can't pick someone unless they are uh, someone who is good, someone who does want to to help, uh, to help others. And so um, on, a, on a much smaller scale, Freddie exhibits the same thing as we see, I think, in Andy, who is... Um, you know, certainly someone who wants to do good, who wants to help. And that's why um, the fireman takes him. You know, why why not just have Andy fight Bo- the Bob Bubble? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I suppose. Is he capable of attacking Cooper, I guess is what I'm asking. And I think the answer is no. That's a good question. I hadn't really thought about it. I think Andy is, is because he is so much like the Dougie character, Andy is not someone who is um, got really that, that aggressive nature to him. I think Freddie probably did. I think Freddie was probably the better choice in terms of someone who would have to be aggressive and actually combative. And Andy is not that. Andy... Um, Andy's mission, essentially, when we get to part 17, is to put all the pieces in place. The pieces are there. They've been, essentially, maybe they've been put in place, but Andy needs to move them around. He needs to, the, the, the impression you get is that the fireman is showing him, look, something's going to happen, and you need to kind of make sure Lucy is there. Uh, and so in the, the vision that Andy has, he's actually leading Lucy down the hall and positioning her outside of Truman's office. Now, he doesn't do that when the actual event happens, but um, he's been given that information and he knows enough that when he runs past Lucy in part 17, he turns to her and he says, very important, very important. And it's almost as if he's conveying to her the the, the gravity of the situation. And it's enough, I think that he's been given that he doesn't can't quite make sense of all of what's been downloaded into him but he knows he can convey it to Lucy and he does and and he essentially gets her to to wake up and activate you know to what she needs to do um he also goes down into the into the jail and he makes sure he gets you know everybody out of the jail and brings them up 
Um, he, he just, and, and, and we, we talked about this, uh, on our conversation before the podcast, um, after Andy brings everybody up and Mr. C has been shot and this whole thing has gone down, Andy's the only one who leaves the room. He, he passes Lucy, touches her and he goes out to greet Cooper when Cooper walks in because and and direct cooper to where cooper needs to go and i think all of that is sort of critical andy is, is sort of the traffic cop so to speak in this in this sequence and he's making sure everybody gets into place where they need to be and um he takes definitive action uh and essentially he saves the day i think even though it's lucy who pulls the trigger you know and and, and other players you play the freddie does what he does um andy sort of orchestrates it yeah i think i'd like to talk a little bit about this is the chair <laughs> which is a great episode we assume um, viewers after watching it no no uh, in <laughs> well the, um uh in in the briggs household but there's another chair conversation that happens in that episode and it's between andy and lucy um, and it's probably related to the chair that they're going to put in the office of Wally Brando's former bedroom. But what, what happens in there is they both defer to each other. And it's a really beautiful moment. And I, I feel like what you just laid out there, that ability for Andy to walk by his wife and say, very important, very important, builds off of that deferral where there's so much trust and love there that she just moves into place naturally. Yes, yes. I, and I think the fireman knew Andy was the person to to he could rely on Andy and Andy was going to Andy was going to follow through and and, and get it done. I mean Andy is sort of he, he, it's it, he you know he is sort of um acting as if he's been programmed but he does also understand the importance of it and um it, it really, you know, it resonates in Andy. He's not just going through the motions blankly. There's emotion there. And he is making sure that um, this situation is resolved. <laughs> and he's the one to go to. I, 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 I admire that character more and more um, as I watch the show. Yeah, and I, I think... You know, as we think about, you know, who are who is the most religious character on Twin Peaks? And I don't mean that in the sense of like a faith, but it is faith because faith is is trusting in the plan. Faith is a, a deferral of your higher thoughts to know that, you know, just acting out of your own good instinct is literally the best thing you can do in some situations. And I feel like in that in that sense, Andy is one of the most spiritual or just spiritually wise people in all of Twin Peaks. Yeah, she, he is one of the good ones. That's what the log lady says, and 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 you know the log lady knows what she's talking about, <laughs> and he really is. He and, and and I don't mean to you know single Andy out away from Lucy. Lucy is also uh, one of the good ones, uh, without a doubt. But we see a little more of Andy. We see a little just a little bit more. Obviously, he was chosen and got that data dump, and then he he, he springs into action in part seventeen. Right. And he has more authority. Like Andy has more agency as a, as a police officer than Lucy does. Uh, yes, I mean, you know, of course, just in terms of the roles that they, you know, the surface roles we see them in. Um, I think 
I think Lucy is also, you know, equally good as, as Andy. We just don't in the story see as many things happen with her like they do with Andy. Um, you know, in terms of obviously the core of it is that Andy was taken or selected by the firemen to get all this information. And, um, it's interesting too the information that Andy gets. You would think the fireman would be just enough to say, "Look, you know, um, there's these two Coopers, and you got to position Lucy <laughs> right here." But instead, Andy gets like the entire chronology. He gets it from from he gets the whole thing all the way back to Bob, you know, coming out uh, in in 1945, and um, the the, the God of Light Woodsman, and the, Laura Palmer has angels around her, and there's these two Coopers, and um, and then Lucy needs to be positioned. And then he even sees the Odessa, Texas. Right. Imagery. He's the only character that sees Odessa, Texas as part of the plan. Yeah. And I think he doesn't necessarily understand. He doesn't understand what those things mean specifically. And I don't think he even can re- necessarily remember everything that he was shown. But the, he's been given the context. He's been shown what's at stake here. And... And so that is, uh, I think the fireman trusts that he can give that to Andy. And it also very important that Andy realizes essentially when Andy says to Lucy, very important, very important. He is conveying in those four words, the two words repeated, everything he got downloaded into him by the fireman. This is the most important thing that could possibly be the fate of the, you know, the world essentially hinges on these moments so do you think and this is a loaded question do you think this makes andy a prophet within the narrative uh well what do you mean by prophet so the way you just laid that out that i've got you know secret knowledge i can't explain it all you know i know there's a plan i I have faith in the plan Uh, i'm gonna move other people into the right places so that the plan can work that's prophecy I mean, that's that's what a prophet does. Yeah, I, I think, though, that I think that after this moment, if we were if we were you know given the ability to follow the story, um, I think Andy would, and Lucy would go back to the way they were. Um, and I'm not sure that this monumental event in their lives, whether they remember it or not, because we've talked about that. You know, how much do you remember uh, would change them? They're already purely good at, well, or, or essentially, you know, as good as you can get as being a human being on Earth. And um, I think they're satisfied with their lives the way they are and going to go back to that. They, are, they don't necessarily feel any obligation to go and um, spread, you know, any kind of gospel or any kind of, you know, affect any change other than taking care of their own individual lives and the people who are around them. Yeah, it's very, it's very ascetic, you know, in many ways. There's this concept in Hinduism of a fourth stage of life for, for men in some, in some areas of that culture where they essentially change their name, give up all their worldly wealth, uh, renounce all their titles, don't, don't really interact with their former family or children anymore, and they wander, they wander India in, in search of adventures almost, and who, who can they help, and they live off of the kindness of strangers, and this idea of uh, asceticism I think is really interesting here because he's not, they're not building a, a church, they're not establishing any new institution, they're helping people out who need to be helped, and then they revert back to their normal, nice, kind ways. Yeah, and you know what you just described, though, could be Wally 
Brando out there in the world, you know, doing what he does. And we don't know enough about it. We only have that one scene. But obviously, as I said, we do know who Lucy and Andy are. And so... Um, well, Wally could have his own show. That's very yeah, clear. <laughs> right. Studying part 14... Uh, I, I came to a better understanding of the character and how he's positioned in the story and why he's chosen to do what he does. Um, and I came to admire the character a lot more. Not that I didn't like the character beforehand, but um, uh, it just seemed to be, there was a complexity in a way to such a simple character uh, that I hadn't really seen before. And so I appreciated it more. For, for sure. And it's it's really easy, actually, if you've only watched the show once or twice to write Andy's presence off inside the show. It's just kind of a, he's a joke, you know, a couple laughs and some weird scenes. But the truth is that it, it, he's actually a vital component of the narrative that unfolds in the return. And to to really double click on him means that you're double clicking on the best of Twin Peaks, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I really, I mean, he he is an admirable character for sure, and um, and you're right. I think, you know, I think when you talk way back about uh, you know the first time we see Andy in, in the pilot, um, that those characteristics that played for comedy, but also played uh, as being truly you know real and grieving, uh, you know, some of that kind of got flattened out as we got into the second season and, and Andy was played more for a comedy. And so was Lucy. And I think, I think, I think uh, Kimmy Robertson has, has said, you know, that it became more of a, of a comic uh, comedy character. Um, but I don't think Lynch and Frost designed them that way. Uh, you know, from the beginning, they were, they were comp complicated characters to the extent that they could be. And uh, I think they honored those characters when they came back to them in the return. I mean, don't think, you know, it, it, it was an interesting uh, needle to thread. They still had to be light characters and comedic. And we do get that with it's all, you know, is it about the bunny, <laughs> you know, and all of these things that are silly. And yet there is a groundedness to those two characters and they found a way to maintain that element of their character while still having them being kind of flighty and kind of silly. And, uh, and yet, um, man, I'll tell you what, if you were going to, if you needed someone to help you, <laughs> those are the two characters you would go to and, and they prove it in the story. Well, I will say this, you know, I, uh, I don't think there's going to be any more Twin Peaks. I'll, you know, I know there's a lot of people who are holding out hope that there'll be a new, uh, you know, a new story somewhere down the road. And it could certainly happen. Um, I think the avenue into a new story, if there ever was going to be one, would be Andy and Lucy. I think they they know Andy knows more <laughs> than than maybe anyone else. And if you were going to perhaps fall, you know, let's say this is a silly thing to do and I, I I don't like doing this honestly about you know imagining what another season would be like because I think it's it's over and I think it ends just fine I actually have no problem with the end but if someone was going to go out there and try to find Cooper on that dark sidewalk I think it would be Andy Brennan who would just blink into existence and say don't worry Agent Cooper I'll tell you exactly what year it is <laughs> so um, I think that's my last comment on it